Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Renee Powers here, and I am so excited to tell you about our June box. As you are, I'm sure, well aware, June is Pride Month, and we are celebrating pride beyond the binary. So we are celebrating trans voices this month, and our book of the month is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. I love this book. I was so honored to have an advanced copy when it came out early last year, and I just devoured it. It is such a topsy-turvy, uncomfortable in the best way, reimagining of family, of gender, of sexuality, and I just think Tori is brilliant, and I cannot wait to read this book with all of you. So this is the publisher description. So in case you haven't heard of this book, if you haven't read it yet, so this is the description of Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Reese almost had it all, a loving relationship with Amy, an apartment in New York City, a job she didn't hate. She had scraped together what previous generations of trans women could only dream of, a life of mundane bourgeois comforts. The only thing missing was a child. But then her girlfriend Amy detransitioned and became Ames, and everything fell apart. Now Reese is caught in a self-destructive pattern, avoiding her loneliness by sleeping with married men. Ames isn't happy either. He thought detransitioning to live as a man would make life easier, but that decision cost him his relationship with Reese, and losing her meant losing his own family. Even though their romance is over, he longs to find a way back to her. When Ames's boss and lover Katrina reveals that she's pregnant with his baby and that she's not sure whether she wants to keep it, Ames wonders if this is the chance he's been waiting for. Could the three of them form some kind of unconventional family and raise the baby together? This provocative debut is about what happens at the emotional, messy, and vulnerable corners of womanhood that platitudes and good intentions can't reach. Tori Peters brilliantly and fearlessly navigates the most dangerous taboos around gender, sex, and relationships, gifting us a thrillingly original, witty, and deeply moving novel. So again, that is the description of Detransition Baby. (laughs) It is so good. It is just so, so good. And I'm really excited for the discussions that will be happening around it in our community. So in addition to that, as always, you can get just the book sent to you. And that's all. We will be chatting in our discussion group all month long. I'm certain of it. (laughs) If you've already read this book or you already own it and you don't need a copy, you can either join us at the virtual membership level and join the discussion that way. You receive nothing from us. You just get access to all of our online content, extra content, discussion groups, virtual chats, video chats. In addition, you can also swap the book of the month. So we have a few other trans authors in our library that you can swap out instead, or you can choose something from our extensive library of feminist books. Now, in addition to our book of the month, we are so excited to be partnering with My Pride Store. My Pride Store was founded by Andrea Saunders, who began the store as a way to pay for her transition. So it turns out what she thought was good insurance actually had a trans exclusion clause. So she had to pay out of pocket for all of her gender affirming surgeries. So what started as a simple buttons shop on Etsy has grown to include all sorts of pride related products for your home, your closet, accessories, 
t-shirts, mugs, flags, every flag imaginable. And the best part is if Andrea doesn't carry your flag, whatever pride flag that you identify with, she will make it. It is so important for all of us to be seen. And Andrea knows that. We are including one of the inclusive pride flags. So that's the updated pride flag with the rainbow flag and the black and brown and transgender uh, triangle on the side. I think it is fantastic. I am so excited to, I mean, we've got ours hanging in our shop window, but I'm so excited to be sharing this inclusive pride flag with everybody. And it is a full-size flag. I think it's like three feet by four feet. It is a full flag. (laughs) So that's coming from my pride store. Again, we love Andrea at my pride store, Transowned, out of Indiana, actually out of my hometown in Indiana, which is, I was so surprised to see that when I found them online because, you know, Indiana is not necessarily the bastion of uh, progress. (laughs) Andrea's holding it down. So make sure you check out mypridestore.net as well and uh, see what else she has to offer, but there will be a pride flag in our June box, as well as a mini print from Emulsify Art. So Emulsify Art is created by Mar, and under the name Emulsify, they create art that helps them heal, learn, advocate, and imagine new worlds. They believe that all art is powerful and political, and this mini print, which doubles as you can frame it, it doubles as a postcard or just as a note card. It is so beautiful. It's got three genderless folks on the front, and it says, your survival is resistance, and absolutely could not agree more. It is so important for us to not only accept and uplift trans voices and trans people, but to protect them and to celebrate them. And you cannot say you're inclusive if you are not including trans and non-binary voices. So uh, we are so excited to be working with Mar. They are just a delight to work with and all of their art is top notch. We cannot wait. I mean, personally, there's a couple of their prints that I'm really excited about that I'll be placing in order. Um, But there's also stickers and postcards and note cards and all sorts of goodies over on Emulsify Art on Instagram and on their website. So we've got a flag. We've got a mini print. We also have, we've never done this before. We're adding a second book. (laughs) This isn't one you can swap, but it's a a short book. It's um, part of the Pocket Change collection from Penguin. This book is Beyond the Gender Binary by Alok Vade Manon. Um, You might recognize Alok They've been all over Instagram. I recognize them from their work with Jonathan Van Ness about fashion and the gender binary and de-gendering, I'm going to say, de-gendering fashion. So in this pocket-sized book, Alok Vade Manan challenges the world to see gender not in black and white, but in full color. Taking from their own experiences as a gender non-conforming artist, they show us that gender is a malleable and creative form of expression. The only limit is your imagination. This book is pocket-sized. It is introductory to what the gender binary is and how to push beyond it. Even if you are cisgender, even if you are fully trans, you don't have to perform gender in any specific way. And that's what they're trying to convey with this book and their art. I, I encourage you to follow Alok on Instagram because their fashion is incredible. So that book is going to be alongside Detransition Baby. And finally, the final product in our June Trans Voices box is 
one of our favorites. So you know we love Homebody MN candles and we couldn't think of anybody better to partner with for our Trans Voices box. So Homebody MN has created a line of candles that have us feeling gay summer vibes. <laughs> Cameron is the owner. He's a trans man and he creates the most stunning scents. I They're so unique and so delightful. So we've got four different scents of tea lights and everybody's going to receive two tea lights in their boxes. My favorite, well, first off, my favorite name, he also names his scents just like super cute. So my favorite name of candles that we're including is Cheers Queers. I think it's so cute. That's a cucumber water and melon. So, so perfectly summery, but my favorite scent is called Sun Makes Me Happy. It's pineapple and palm, which you can't get more summery than that. And these little tea lights are perfect for like lanterns or, you know, little votives out on your patio or on your balcony or backyard, wherever you are spending time during summer evenings, these are going to be the perfect little flickery light. They're, I, I feel like we don't have enough tea lights in this world <laughs> because they're so lovely and so versatile. You can use them for everything. So these are going to be two little tea lights in every box as well. Now, as you know, we donate 5% of our sales every month to a different social justice organization. And this month we are spotlighting Trans Lifeline. So Trans Lifeline is a grassroots nonprofit specializing in a hotline and micro grants. They offer direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis for the trans community by the trans community. That was really important to us. We wanted something that was run by trans folks um, for trans folks. So the Trans Lifeline connects trans people to the community support and resources they need to survive and thrive. So important. They envision a world where trans people have the connection, economic security, and care that everyone needs and deserves free of prisons and police. So that's also um, playing a little bit into our July theme, which is liberation. So we are so excited to spotlight Trans Lifeline and champion the work that they do. It's so important and excited to share all of these trans businesses with you as well. Like It's so cool. This was unintentional, but we were able to curate products across the gender spectrum. So we've got a trans woman, a trans man, and a couple of non-binary gender fluid folks. It's so beautiful to see the art and creation of people across the gender spectrum. Because remember, gender is not binary. You're not just a man or a woman. We're everything in between. And so I can't wait for this month. I can't wait to share this with all of you. I can't wait for Pride. Feminist Book Club will once again be at the Twin Cities Pride Festival at the end of June. And we are just like absolutely excited. I've been, I've been looking forward to it all year, ever since last year, because we just had so much fun last year. So I hope that you join us again. You can join us at just the virtual level, the book only level, or the full box experience and support all of these trans-owned businesses. And, and no matter how you support us, we will donate 5% of every dollar to Trans Lifeline in the month of June. So you can head to feministbookclub.com slash join. That gets you right there. Use code podcast for $5 off. And we can't wait to meet you. Happy Pride. Hi, everyone. My name is Ashley. I am a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Stephanie Robel. 
Stephanie grew up writing tales with happy endings only to write dark turns in adulthood. She worked as a copywriter for ad agencies in Chicago. She received her MFA from Emerson College and she joins the Feminist Book Club podcast to discuss her second novel, This Might Hurt. Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So my first question is, what is your definition of feminism? Hmm, that's one I haven't gotten yet for this book. Um, so my definition of feminism is just that uh, women have the same opportunities as men across all playing fields. Um, obviously, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. But I think at its core, that's what that's what being a feminist is to me. Thank you. And what is This Might Hurt about? So This Might Hurt is a story of three women, uh, two of whom are sisters, Natalie and Kit Collins. And when the book starts, they haven't spoken in six months because Kit's been away at this self-improvement retreat on a private island called Wisewood. Um, and part of the rules there are no talking to anyone outside of Wisewood in order to really focus on yourself. So the story starts with her older sister, Natalie, uh, getting this anonymous email from a Wisewood account that says, would you like to tell your sister what you did or should we? So Natalie sets off to Wisewood to go come clean with her sister and hopefully try to bring her home. Mm, yes, it's quite a layered story. And speaking of layers, how did you decide to structure the novel and create the timeline? Like I said, there's, um, there's three narrators, three female narrators, and I always knew that two of them would be there. Um, the impetus for this was really wanting to explore a cult. So though those inside Wisewood would describe it as a self-empowerment retreat, um, I'm going to call it a cult because it meets all those parameters. Um, and so two of those perspectives, one is um, written by or written from the point of view of a cult member, and one is written from the leader's point of view. And then the third perspective, which is Natalie, who's the outsider, hers really came along later. Um, I just decided I wanted uh, sort of a stand-in for the reader, someone who didn't know all the rules of Whitewood, someone who was unfamiliar um, just with the atmosphere and surroundings. So I, pretty early on, I would say I had those three perspectives. Um, and then in terms of how to sort of intertwine them, that came a bit later in the process. What did you want to explore in this world of cults? The book would say that this is a self-imposed retreat, but as you said, this is a cult. So what did you want to explore with this world? And what were the elements that you, you thought of to develop for Wisewood? The main, you know, like a lot of people, I've been fascinated by cults for a really long time. And I was always curious why people joined them. Um, and so as I did my research, you know, I was trying to find commonalities in members across real cults. Um, and the only thing I could find is that they're all searching for deeper meaning in their lives. They all want some sort of higher purpose. They're dissatisfied with things as they are. And that actually made the job a lot easier because, you know, who among us hasn't experienced that at some point in life? Then when it came time to create my own cult, I wanted to make sure it was something that the reader could nod their head along to, at least initially. And so I ruled out no religious cult, no sex cult. I didn't want it to be anything that seemed taboo right from the start. I wanted it to be like I said, these three principles, I think most people could agree that being fearless in theory sounds like a good thing. You know, living a freer life sounds like a good thing. Maybe leaving behind technology for a bit, not such a bad thing. And I, because I think that mimics the experience that real cult members have, which is that nobody's up for a cult, right? They sign up to join some sort of social group 
a religious organization, whatever it is, and then it becomes more nefarious as you get deeper and deeper and things take a turn. Um, and so I really wanted the reader to not from the beginning just go, there's something wrong here. No way would I ever do this. Because I think we do as people outside of cults kind of judge or label people who join them as naive or whatever. Um, and that really wasn't my experience when I did the research. You know, it's these are people from all walks of life. It doesn't matter where you came from, how educated, how much money you make, whatever. Um, it really is just finding you at the right or wrong time in your life and kind of capitalizing on that. So yeah, that's what I really wanted Wisewood to sort of feel like something that you, the reader, could maybe dip your toe into and not immediately be skeptical. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by, I guess, retreat culture. Just this idea of like, we're going to give you a week to just kind of decompress and it's there's going to be a vegetarian diet and it's, you know, going to be tranquil, but then you kind of realize like you're, you're paying for some sort of reprieve that you're, you're probably not going to achieve when you're there. And as far as cults go, you have enough of a captivating leader. Almost anyone is susceptible to follow. Yeah. That place of what you said, you you get caught up at a certain time in your life. You're, you're bound to fall for someone who's captivating, but it could really be a cult. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up the retreats, you know, and Wisewood is not meant to be a luxury retreat. You know, they're making bologna sandwiches, they're cleaning the bathrooms themselves. So it's certainly not, you know, the, these sort of wellness retreats that we see, but it was interesting. I did research a lot of luxury retreats and some of them go even farther than Wisewood, which is, you know, I think, I think I even mentioned in the book, you know, there are some where you're not allowed to smile at each other. You're not allowed to speak, period. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of stuff out there now. And so it was interesting kind of trying to walk that tightrope of how far can I push the reader where they're still coming along? And then what's the point when they'd say, nope, this is too far. I would never do that. And so I, I landed on the side of basically like, what would I do? And yeah, there's, there's definitely been times that I've thought it'd be really interesting to just give up my phone or social media for six months. But on the other side, I was like, you probably couldn't convince me that I'm not going to speak for that period of time. So it was kind of just hoping that the reader was on the same page that I was in that case. And it's also interesting, like I think about famous people who have talked about going on retreats, um, like Lupita Nyong'o mentioned after she won her Oscar that she went on a silent retreat. And of course, she's coming off of this huge moment in her career and she went on a silent retreat and then all of a sudden there was all these articles about what are silent retreats mm -hmm. and on the opposite side uh Jared Leto was in at a camp came out of that camp learning about COVID-19 so he was in this place oh. where you know he had no access to news or anything and then he comes out and the world has truly completely changed. So I think famous people talking about it could also spark some interest in people. Yeah, it's interesting too how to deal with the COVID thing. You know, I, I had written the first draft of the book before COVID happened. And I just basically, I didn't really have to adjust the timeline at all. You know, in, in the most present day, let's call it timeline, it's January, 2020. And I just had to make sure that we got, you know, that the story ended because I didn't even want to deal with the whole how would they feel about COVID? Because you're right, you know, if 
if you've been living on an island for six months and you come out and you find out about COVID, that's like a whole story and it's done. So that was an interesting timeline to play with. So what, but you mentioned that Natalie and Kit are sisters. What was foundational for writing about them as sisters and individuals? When I, as I mentioned, I, the third character, the outsider was the last one to come along. And I wanted this person to be more obligated than say a friend to Kit, but less than let's say a parent. And so I felt like a sibling was just the right balance of you do feel as the oldest of three sisters, um, I would feel a certain obligation to go make sure my little sister was all right. Um, And so when I decided to do a sibling, I don't have any brothers. As I said, I do have two sisters. So I was like, that's a relationship I've known all my life. And it's a very interesting one because the dial between best friends and I hate you, I'm never speaking to you again, you know, can change back and forth sometimes in a day, you know, three or four times, especially when you're kids. Um, So I just thought that would be an interesting relationship to explore. And there's something about siblings where even if you grow up in the exact same environment, exact same parents, you can still have completely different perceptions of how you each grew up. And there's something really interesting about that. You know, Natalie, had to grow up very fast. She had to step in when her mom was unable to. And so her version, her view of their childhood is very different from Kit, who basically was mothered by both her, her, their mother and Natalie and got to be a little more innocent and naive for longer. And so I just think it's so fascinating the way that they can go through all the same steps, but still come out with very different perspectives of what their childhood was like. Yes. And as a writer, what do you need to be your maximized self? Maximized self was something, I guess, an affirmation that was throughout the book, um, but it was also kind of suspicious and mysterious and almost had like a horror aspect to it, um, given the, the environment. So as a writer, what do you need to be your maximized self? That's such a good question. Um, so yeah, maxim- I would view, you know, the maximized self is basically just, are we being the fullest version of ourselves, the most fearless, fearless version of ourselves? And so for me as a writer professionally, I think that means really trying to be fearless in your writing. So not necessarily taking the easy way out, ways out where, that you know readers would maybe prefer. So without giving anything away, that ending of this story is a bit ambiguous, which I know turns a lot of readers off. They're, uh, the main characters are often unlikable or unrelatable and make decisions that we're, we as readers are not happy about, which is also a risk. And so it's, it's really just kind of sticking to my guns and sticking to the vision of the story without letting too many other opinions in during the creation. You know, there's plenty of time once the book comes out to get everybody's you know, viewpoints. But I think as an artist and as a writer, you really have to stick to, to that vision because otherwise... You know, if you're just trying to write to please everybody, then what do you, you stand for nothing? You know, you're, you're not going to stand out. Knowing your voice as a writer is so important because you're always going to have someone who has pushed back and someone who is, or to choose to not understand what you're writing. So that's where most of the pushback comes in. So it's good that you stand with your convictions um, as a writer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's funny because you'll read reviews and they'll completely contradict each other. You know, one person will say, I never saw the twist coming. And someone else will say, I saw the twist from miles away. So, yeah, it's like it's like you have to it's just part of the process. Right. Like uh, kind of embracing that vulnerability and just accepting like you're not going to please everyone. 
but your readers will come to it and they'll stick with you. And like, that's what, those are the people that you have to focus on. You just can't get in this mindset of wanting every single person to love your book. Cause it'll never happen. Even the best books that have been written, you know, there are still people that hate them. Right. So each book begins with an affirmation and they read, and as I was saying, you know, they read like a warning as much as peace. How did you write the affirmations? I think, you know, as I was developing the cult, I really wanted to have these sort of cornerstones of like, okay, what do we stand for? What are these sort of pithy little statements we can make that are easy to memorize, easy for the teachers beyond teacher to sort of espouse and, you know, pass along to the, to the disciples. And because I had decided that this cult was going to be all about conquering fear and conquering pain, I just kind of tried to come up with, you know, three principles that, you know, are very basic and build on each other. So I want to live a life in which I am free. I don't think any human being on the planet would say, I disagree, you know? And so just building from there and there. Um, and again, trying to make the statements innocuous in the sense that you could say, yeah, those sound good. I'm shaking my head. But to your point also, because you know the genre and because you know sort of the premise of the story, you are thinking like, okay, well, there's a lot of different ways you could interpret this. So it's maybe not as you know innocent as it seems if you just take it at, its, at face value. The book has been in the world for a month now. How has your experience been as going back to, you know, people, critics or readers having their opinions on it? You know, you've built this world of Wisewood with these sisters and you've been able to explore so much. Um, how, how, how has the experience been so far with the book out? It's been great. I mean, it's, it's nerve wracking each time, you know, this is only my second, so I'm hoping that with each book, I'll get better and better about, you know, not freaking out in the days leading up to publication. But I suspect that that's just kind of part of the deal. You know, you you put your heart and soul into something. In this case, it was for two years. And of course, you're nervous about what the reaction will be. Um, but most people, I think, are pretty civil online so far in the sense of, you know, there's kind of that unspoken rule of, you know, tag the author in your positive reviews, don't tag them in the negative. And so I just, you know, I don't Google myself. I don't, you know, search my name on Instagram or anything. I want people to be out there discussing the book critically, whatever way they choose, as long as they're not tagging me in it, you know, because, um, because yeah, the, I'm the kind of person where I will memorize a negative review verbatim after reading it once. And the positive ones will just, you know, leave my mind after a day. So so I try not to pay too much attention to the reviews and I'm just really appreciative when people do want to engage, whether it's interviews like this or book clubs or whatever. I mean, that's the really fun stuff is, is getting to actually talk to readers and to hear their takes on things and their different reactions to characters and stuff like that. Yes, it seems that, you know, you write a story, you spend so much time with it, you put, you know, idea to vision. And then when you release it, you just have to learn how to let it go, which I think you've been able to do because again, it's just going to be received the way that it's supposed to, but you know, in your heart, you did what you were, you, what you intended to do. And the vision is clear in this book. Yeah. I mean, I think too, working on new projects helps a lot with that. So, you know, because the publishing timeline is so long, it takes nine to 12 months from the time you finish a book for it to hit bookshelves you know, you're well into the next book that you're working on by then. And that helps because now you're, 
your heart and soul is now with another project. So it's not all just, you know, sitting there with bated breath. It's, it's a little, it's better to get some distance from it, I think. So you're not so feeling so vulnerable. And are you able to share what you're working on? My third novel is about an American woman who is living in a giant manor in the English countryside. Um, she's been living there for three years. She hasn't left in that time. She hasn't spoken to anyone else in that time. We don't know why she's there. And the story starts with this elderly British woman coming and knocking on her door and the story unfolds from there. I'm already ready to put a bookmark <laughs> into this book. So congratulations <laughs> on getting your new, your new book started. It sounds fascinating. Thank you so much. And so the last questions that I have are what bookstore or bookstores would you like our audience to buy This Might Hurt From? And what organization would you like to amplify? I'm kind of all over the place this year. I'm in the middle of moving from the UK back to the US. So I'm going to shout out bookshop.org, who I think is just an incredible resource. You know, if you don't have an indie store near you or you can't get out to it, then you can still support indies by shopping on bookshop.org. Um, the money goes back to helping all kinds of indies, you know, versus some of the bigger players who maybe don't need as much support. Um, so yeah, I definitely would, would love to amplify them. I'm a big fan of, I, I think they've, it's incredible how quickly they've grown because, you know, they've only been around a few years and they, I mean, every time I go to their site, the number of how much they've raised, you know, sit right there in the center, just ticking up and up and up. And it's really encouraging because booksellers are one of our greatest resources as writers. You know, they're, they're really passionate about the books. It's not about just algorithms and and sales and money and you know all of that it's it reminds you why you do what you do which is to get to readers and to maybe affect some change on the best of days thank you for that and is that the organization you want to amplify this is a very basic one but planned parenthood it seems like an excellent time to support yes. them certainly with all that's going on in the world right now and the, the decisions that could possibly be coming down from the Supreme Court this summer. So, so yeah, I'm a big advocate of them and I would encourage everyone who supports uh, women's rights to get behind them. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining us to talk about This Might Hurt, the bookstore that you would like to amplify, as well as the organization. We thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.